So we're finishing up uh, Romans today, and before we get into Scripture, I thought I kind of got a funny thing, is that, um, you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that James Dynan, who's the religious editor for the Daily Sun, called me up and says, what do you do for fun, Pastor Harold? And I'm doing an article about, you know, and he, the phase to it was, uh, you know, how do pastors de-stress? So they did a beautiful article last week, and um, matter of fact, they actually came and took pictures, and so there's, there's a picture of me in the back part, and um, it was in the Daily Sun. And so I thought, you know, this is a really nice article, so I thought that maybe somebody out of like 3,000 people in our congregation might reach out and say, you know what, that a boy, Harold, that was really good. Or maybe a text or a phone call or an email or something. And I got one and it was from my mother. So there you go. How about that? Booyah. My mother is my greatest fan. She told me she was proud of me. So I got one and I got that going for me. Okay. So, you know, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay. Okay. So we continue in our sermon series and finish up on the Romans. And you know what? Here's the interesting thing. I was actually just going to do four parts of this sermon series, but then um, last, about two weeks ago, someone came to me and says, Pastor, you have to do Romans 8. And I said, you know what? I'll add that in. So we're going to do Romans 8 today. It's such a great piece of scripture. And so our key verse that I wanted to, um, you know, our kind of key memory verse, and each week we've been focused on different verses. And so the key verse for us this morning is, and matter of fact, I think we can put this up on the screen if you can. We know that all, can you say this with me if you could? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So um, I was back here, um, I went earlier this week and um, you know, at lunchtime, sometimes I like to just kind of get away and I bring my lunch and I'm, I went back here. There's like a, actually it's very quiet back here and uh, there's a little picnic table. And it's, it's tranquil, it's, um, and I can kind of watch the birds, and um, there's a pond back here, and then the columbarians back there. So I'm having my peanut butter jelly sandwich, and so this last week, Donna went and bought some potato chips. And so, and so um, normally, I like the kind of the flavored potato chips, but she bought just the basic potato chips. And so I'm eating my potato chips, and um, they're Lay's potato chips, and um, I thought it was interesting because they're classic potato chips. And so then I started to think about, I mean, why did they put classic on, right on the bag? And, and so uh, the reason why they're, they're actually considered classic is that Lay started making potato chips, I looked this up, back in 1940. So uh, they've been making potato chips for 82 years. And so if you go get just the plain Jane, plain potato chips, you're gonna get the classic one. So then I started to think about the word classic over this last week. And I, I thought this is interesting, so I, I looked up the definition for the word classic. So this is what classic um, means. Judged over a period of time to be of the highest quality and outstanding of its kind. Let me say that again. Judged over a period of time to be the highest quality and outstanding of its kind. So then I started thinking about, okay, what would be considered classics like, for example, um, classic movies or classic TV shows? So immediately, what came to my mind when it came to TV shows, I Love Lucy. And of all the episodes to me, the most iconic classic I Love Lucy episode was when she was in the chocolate factory, <laughs> right? Do you remember that? Okay, so, so I, I thought of that. I thought, about, um, I thought about the Andy Griffith show and Opie. I thought about Gunsmoke was a classic. I thought about Dallas and Who Shot JR? Okay, do you remember that? Okay, so I want you to know, that episode of Who Shot JR was the number one um, most viewed episode in history. 83 million people tuned in that night to watch that episode. 
So that would be considered classic. Then I started thinking about like classic lines in movies. So Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, <laughs> 1939. Uh, here's looking at you, kid, Casablanca, 1942. May the force be with you, Star Wars, 1977. Yo, Adrian, Rocky, 1976. I feel the need for speed, Top Gun, 1986. And Franklin, my dear, I don't give a darn. <laughs> Gone with the wind. Number one ranked. Then I started thinking about, okay, classic, um, like classic books, like um, the, uh, the War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy and The Great Gatsby and The Ventures of Huck Finn and Moby Dick. And then I top, um, there was like a, a top 100, top greatest books of all time. And the Bible made it, it was 33. So I, I thought it was really interesting to look at all these classics. Then I started reflecting upon, because I knew I was be preaching on Romans 8, 28, and I started reflecting upon, because we've been on this journey together, right? And, and so the classic, and you know what's very powerful, it's some, some of the greatest lines that we find in the Bible are actually, many of them are actually found in um, the eighth chapter, or actually throughout Romans. So for example, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, Romans 3, we talked about that. If you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Romans 12. And then as the memory verses we talked about just a few minutes ago, and we mentioned, we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. Classics. So I gotta tell you a cute little story. Um, last week, I was hoping that Barb Harbaugh would be here because I knew she was, um, she was having a, celebrating her birthday. And so she wasn't able to come, and so I called her because it was her birthday on Monday morning. And I said, Barb, we really missed you at church. I was looking forward. She says, well, you know, Pastor Harold, all my friends and my family came in to celebrate Saturday night, so I wasn't able to come to church, but she was here last night. Matter of fact, let me show you a picture of Barb Hobball. Here's a picture of her. And she, well, let me tell you, she turned 102 on Monday. And so let me tell you something. Isn't that great? So if, when you turn 102, you will get a phone call from your senior pastor. I want you to know that. When you turn 102, I will call you. So she, I called her, and so what was very just precious, and to me, this is a classic line coming from someone who just turned 102, and this is what she said. I said, Barb, it's so good to hear your voice this morning. I want to wish you a happy birthday, and she says, Pastor Harold, I'm two, and she says, I'm working on my second 100th century, is what she said to me. Isn't that great? Yeah, 102, classic. Okay, so before we get to Romans 8, you kind of, once again, you got to look at Romans 7. And what's very powerful is 7 actually sets up 8. And so what we find in Romans 7, there's another really classic line that most of us have got it memorized. Matter of fact, I think it's one of my favorite pieces in the whole, pieces of scripture in the whole Bible. And I'll tell you about it in just a second. But what's very interesting before we get to this classic line, the end of that chapter 7, Paul is really struggling because he's, He's realizing there's this tension going on in his church in Romans, in Rome. And so the tension is that you have, once you have the, the, the Gentile Christians, and then you got the, the Jewish Christians, and then you got the Christians, and then you got the Jews, and there's, there's all this kind of tension going on. And so they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, how are you ultimately saved? How can you really find righteousness? 
And of course, the, the old covenant was that you had to follow the law. And then, and of course, um, the original covenant was established with Abraham, and God says, I'm gonna dis- bless your descendants as, na- as numbers the stars. And of course, Abraham was having a hard time to buy into that because he was already 90 years old, and so, um, and his wife was, you know, pushing 80 or 90 as well, Sarah, and he said, I don't know if this is really gonna happen. And God says, yes, it's gonna happen. So um, eventually, they had um, Isaac, and so there's this generation after generation and generation that God had fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. So we have that covenant, and then we have, well, and then there's this, when Moses comes along, they, he gives us all these, and he gives us these laws. And so the Pharisees had come up with 613 laws. Try to keep up with 613 laws, right? And so the, you had to continue to kind of work at it, right? And so there's this, all this tension of trying to keep up, and you find righteousness by keeping Moses' laws. And then Paul comes along and says, no, someone comes and actually triumphs over all that, and his name is Jesus. And so what we find here, and I I, I broke it down, but it goes back to my potato chip little story here, is that I really believe that you have a classic covenant that is established, and we call this actually the old existing covenant that God establishes with Abraham. But what Paul is saying here is, and he makes it very clear, when Jesus comes along and Jesus said it's himself, and I'm gonna talk about it in just a second, as I ble- in a minute or so when I bless the sacrament, Jesus says this is the blood of the new covenant. And so for the last 2,000 years, guess what? And this sounds like an oxymoron, but we've been following Jesus and he really is the new classic. We had the old classic, the tradition that we had for thousands of years, the old covenant, and then Jesus ushers in a brand new covenant, and it's really a new classic for us to follow. And so what Paul was struggling with in Romans 7, the, the children of Israel, and you know, there's this class between the Jews and the Gentiles and the Christians and the Jewish people, and all this is going on, and says, no, we find, ultimately we find righteousness through our faith, through our love and, and our belief in Jesus Christ. So it's not placing our faith in the law, and adhering only, only to the law, but Jesus comes and transforms all that. And we believe in him, and he's the one who ultimately is the brand new covenant. So we have all that going on. And so once again, we find that there's a struggle that's going on in, within the human condition in Romans 7. And so Paul is saying, you know what, we, we have this, this human condition, but we're bent on sinning. No wonder we, you know, Paul talks about in the very beginning of, of the book of Romans, he says, all is sin and we fall short of the glory of God. Can we meant on that? I am, you are, we all are, right? This is, Paul lays it out at the very beginning. And so when we, we get to this part is that there seems to be that, and we have a tendency, once again, to push the envelope. Um, and I, I'm gonna give you an example of that. Um, every morning when I come to church, I usually come right around 7.45, 7.50, 8 o'clock, and um, I, I have a new best friend. I hope I don't meet him, but it's a deputy sheriff. And he, he has got strategically, he is placed at a specific place, and I know exactly where he's at every single day, right? But there are a lot of people who are late for work, and they're blowing through, and the speed limit's 45, and they're pushing the envelope. And, and so, you know, they're thinking, well, maybe I can get by with 53, right? No, you can't, right? And so we have a tendency, once again, we have a tendency to push the envelope that we know it's not exactly right. We know that we shouldn't be doing it, but once again, it's part of our human condition. It's just an example of what happens. And then Paul goes on, and I love this particular text. 
he says, and to me, this is a classic text that many of us memorized in our own heart and we know it by heart. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am, um, I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's the sin living in me. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what, the things I really want to do, I can't end up doing, but the things I really want, I can't do, I, I end up, you know, and there's this constant struggle going on in his human condition. And then he goes on and says, and this to me is a classic line. He says, what a wretched man I am. And then he says, who will rescue me from the body this body that is subject to death. Wow, who's gonna rescue me? And then Paul goes on and says, and once again, this is such a powerful piece of scripture. I highlight it in my Bible. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, exclamation point. Paul answers the question, he says, hey, this is in chapter seven. Seven's gonna chapter, uh, set up eight. He says, who's gonna, who's gonna save me? Who's gonna rescue me? Who's gonna rescue you? And Paul gives us the answer. He says, oh, what a wretched man I am. I've got this inward struggle. I keep pushing the envelope. I don't wanna do, I, the things I really don't wanna do, I end up doing, and it just, I fail over and over and over again. What a wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's this, this tension going on, not only between the Jews and the Gentiles and the Christians and the Jewish people and the, all this is, but then he goes on and says, hey, listen, let me tell you something. There's, we have our own tension that's going on in our own spiritual journey that we have in life. And I get it, but who's gonna, who's gonna rescue us? Which is a really great question. So I, was, I went to a funeral service yesterday morning. Um, I drove all the way to Lakeland, Florida. And um, I, I thought it was very, uh, a very powerful experience uh, for me because um, it was for uh, Pastor Bob Cook. He was a very good friend of mine. He was a, actually a pastor of the Nazarene Church. And so this is through my high school years and through my former life and my college years. And the Nazarenes had a much better basketball team and softball team, so I gravitated to them. I want you to know that. And so I, I started playing. I met all these great um, young people that were, went to this particular church, and they just loved me and accepted me, even though I was a Methodist. They said, sure, Harold, come on. We'd love for you to play. And I love sports. And so I, I actually started going to the Nazarene Church at a certain point in my life, and I, I just loved them. And they just were such great people. And so Pastor Bob was the, the pastor of that church. And so um, back in 19, it was about 1986, um, I received my calling, actually, how it all, and I share with you, I was on a, it was a late Sunday, or a late Saturday afternoon in July, um, and so I went out and ride the, my lawnmower, and went the grass for my mother and father, and all of a sudden I felt the Holy Spirit come on me, and it literally knocked me off the lawnmower, and I started weeping unconditionally, and I said, Lord, what are you doing with me? You're really messing with me. And so then, um, what was very interesting is the next day, you know, I had that somewhat of a conversion experience, but it was the next sun, this next Sunday morning, so it was Saturday, within the next 12 hours, I got up and I went to church. Which church I went to? I went to the Nazarene church. Pastor Bob gave the message, and I went to the altar, because he gave an altar call, and that's where I finally said, okay, Lord, if you want me to be a pastor, I'll be a pastor. Now, that didn't happen in Methodist church. 
It happened in Nazarene Church. And Pastor Bob Cook was the one who gave the message that day. And so he, um, he passed away this about two weeks ago. And bless his heart, he got the COVID and he died. And his wife, Karen, who was just a saint, she was such a beautiful lady, Within, I think within 48 hours, she had the COVID and she died too. So they had the moral service yesterday was for both of them. Yeah, very powerful. They, they memorialed both. And so that um, all three of the kids who I was very close to, they, they did a beautiful job of talking about their mother and their father. And it was just a very powerful service. And so one of Pastor Bob's um, evidently really good friends who was evangelist, he got up. And he talked about this text. And I think it's a really, to me, I, it's one of my favorite places to go in the Holy Land. And, um, and I thought I started thinking about the idea of this question about who. Because there are places that we find in the Bible that people are really trying to figure out who Jesus is. For example, when Jesus um, has, he goes out into, the, out into the wilderness and he has his baptismal experience and then, because he's been out for 40 days and 40 nights and the devil tempts him and he comes back and he's baptized and he goes and shows up in his own hometown and basically gets up and he reads the scripture and then he says, this has been fulfilled in, the, in your midst and they all start scratching their heads and saying, who is this? Isn't this the carpenter, Joseph, the carpenter's son? Who is he? There, there's a place in the scripture is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really, who is Jesus? There's a place in the Bible where Jesus is confronted with Pilate, and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, just who are you? And Jesus snapped back and says, you say that I am. So there's this, there's this kind of this current that flows through all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that people are trying to figure out who just who Jesus really is. Is he a prophet? Is he just a good teacher? Is he the Messiah? And so there's this classic, once again, a classic line that we find where Jesus takes his disciples all the way up to the top of Israel to this kind of hedonistic, this, this pagan community, Caesarea Philippi, this is dripping with paganism. And he's, he's sitting there in front of this pagan temple. And he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And some of them said, well, they think that you're John the Baptist. Or they think that you're Elijah. Or they think that you're one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? I know what they're saying. And then Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And so this, in this service yesterday, this evangelist, he says, I would be remiss if I didn't offer you Jesus today in an evangelistic way because I know that Pastor Cook would want me to offer you Jesus today and accept in him as your savior. So the question for all of us today, and he'd use this text, who do you really say Jesus is in, the, in your life? Is Jesus truly the Lord of your life? Is he your everything? Who do you say that Jesus is? So it's really powerful to me when we get to this part of the book of Romans, when Paul is just, once again, grappling with his own inward nature, his own sinful nature, being bent on sinning. He's talking to the, they're all grappling and there's bitterness and tension and anger, but he's trying to get them to look inside themselves and say, just, you know, 
who is, who's going to rescue you from this lawless, law, this, this sense of lostness in your life of your own sinful nature? And he gives us the answer. Thanks be to God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I was watching an um, interesting um, uh, thing on the news the other night. It was a little s- snippet. And um, it just reminded me of the inward struggle that many people have, and it had to do with alcoholism. And so um, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't know what it feels like to feel that power of being addicted to something like that. I have no clue, but I know it's potent. I also know that everybody in this room has been influenced by alcoholism in some form of fashion. Either you've struggled in some form of fashion, or you're one of your family members, or you know someone who's a close friend that struggled with alcoholism. And so I thought this was a fascinating article because they actually come and they call it the Sinclair Method. And the Sinclair Method has everything to do with actually um, taking a pill so there's sciences all of a sudden and factored in to be able to help people become sober. And I never, I mean, this is just amazing, the technological advancements that have happened. And so they talked about this and they were interviewing this beautiful young woman. I'm guessing she's maybe in her late 20s, maybe 30, 30s. And she was on this particular method and Sinclair method. And they began to interview her. And I, I'm thinking she doesn't look like, you know, she has any issues, but she was just, and she was just gave this amazing story. And she says, you know, I'm alcoholic and I've been going to AA. And then she says, but I've been taking this medicine. And she said, what's very powerful, and I, thought, I never would have thought about this, but evidently, according to this method, is that they said, listen, you don't have to be complete abstinence. You can actually take a drink. And the interesting what happens with this pill is it rewires your brain in order to think, you know what, I don't need another one. So what happens usually with alcoholism, one leads to two, two leads to four, four leads to 16. That's what happens. So what happens with this particular pill, all of a sudden it rewires your brain and you can drink one and you can stop. And so when they're interviewing her and they were actually, they actually then interviewed her and they also interviewed this scientist and who said basically he was throwing AA out the door. He says, AA has not really worked. Science is the answer and blah, 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 blah. And then, um, and then they, then they got interviewed this other person who was in charge of AA and then the person that was in charge of AA, who was the president of the CEO of AA, says, you know, we understand the importance of science. And we understand the importance of how science can help people become sober. But we also believe the importance of the, once again, the principles that we are founded of the AA principles. So I went back and I reread the AA principles this last week. And I thought this was really, really powerful. And some of you are familiar with these. So here, here they are, here's, just, here's a few of them, right? We admit that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Um, we came to believe that a power greater than, than ourselves can restore us to sanity. We can make it, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. Make a dis- and made, a, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. In other words, we have to be self-aware. Admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Humbly ask him to remove all our shortcomings. I thought, man, these are powerful. So this one person says, they're just a bunch of hogwash, right? We need to focus on science. So when they got to the end of the interview, this, this beautiful young woman, by the way, she said, I've struggled with this almost my whole life. 
She says, I would lie to my boyfriend. He says, are you doing okay today? Are you at work? And she said, I would lie to him and say, I was not at work. I was standing at the liquor store waiting for it to open. And then she says, I'm on this particular medicine. And then she says, it's helping me. And they pushed her a little bit more, but then she says, but I still need AA. And so I thought about this. This is such a powerful example, this inward struggle that many people have in our lives, and we all struggle in some form or fashion. And Paul just nails it right on and says, listen, who's going to save us? Because we just can't take a pill and save ourselves. Can they amen on that? didn't work that way. When it comes to our salvation, Jesus Christ, because someone had to die for our redemption to restore us in this relationship, and we call him Jesus who is the new covenant, who is the new classic. So then we get to chapter eight, and and chapter eight is just an amazing journey because Paul once again lays it out and he talks about, you know, um, this this struggle that we're on, but then he talks about, you know, how we're gonna continue to move forward, and he says, listen, and here's the beautiful part is that if you get to Romans 8, Jesus says, it, Paul says, Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but Jesus came to rescue us. There's a thought. So this is the theme that we find. You know, we, we're, you know, we can beat ourselves up, and we have this inward nature and this inward turmoil, and we keep pushing the envelope, and we struggle with life, and it may be an addiction or whatever, and you know, that I do the things I really don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing, and we have all that going on. But he's, who's going to save us? And he says, Jesus is going to save us, but he's not here to condemn us, but thanks be to God that he's come to rescue us. Wow. And what I thought was really interesting in my detective work this week on this text, Romans 8 is really about three things. It talks about the Holy Spirit work in our lives, one. Number two, it has to do with the human condition and human suffering. And by the way, Jesus never promises we were not going to suffer. By the way, they did take our Savior and they nailed him to a cross and he died a wretched, horrible, horrible life. And then the third thing has everything to do with the glory is coming. Can I be meant on that? This is what we find in Romans 8. I mean, we're not condemned. He came to rescue us. He came to, once again, the Holy Spirit's working. Human suffering is a part of life, but he also says glory's coming. So I thought it was really interesting when Paul lays this out and he talks about the works of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens when I think about the gift of the Holy Spirit, you know, I think about two things. I think that the Holy Spirit comes and it's the presence in our lives, that it's the presence of Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that Christ continues to work with us and tries to hold us accountable. And when we're doing that inward struggle things, he's always trying to move us towards the good rather than doing the evil, right? And so this is the, the accountability that Jesus has given us and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it also, it's there to convict us. So it's the Holy Spirit's there to comfort us. It's the presence of Christ in our lives, but it's also there to hold us accountable and to convict us. And so I, I thought, I'm gonna give you an example of this. So what happens is, and this is true in my life, and chances are it's true in your life as well. The Holy Spirit sometimes speaks, but yet I have a tendency sometimes in my stubbornness, I don't always listen. My wife has accused me of that as also of having selective hearing. Okay, you hear it? 
Okay, so, so what happens is like, for example, all right, so um, the, uh, about two years ago, here's my illustration, about two years ago, um, lightning hit a tree in my front yard. And so it didn't completely destroy a tree, it actually put this big black line up the middle of the tree, but the tree continued to live. And so I, you know, I didn't wanna, you know, I didn't really wanna cut down the tree, I still liked the tree, the tree was still green. But then over the last year or two, I started seeing at the base of the tree, it started to kind of maybe, I saw remnants of maybe the, the tree was beginning to deteriorate a little bit and I didn't really know what was going on with the tree, but I started, so there was a, something in the back of my mind was saying, Harold, you need to take care of the tree. You need to remove the tree. The tree needs to come out because you're seeing the signs. So I'm hearing this in the back of my, and guess what? I ignored it. I ignored it. So you know what happens when you ignore that kind of inward feeling? Let me show you. Can I show you a picture? This is what happens when you miss the calling on the tree. Can you show that picture of that tree for me if you could, please? If you could. That's what happens when it falls on your car. So there you go, right? Well, you know what? It really wasn't my car. It was Cameron's car. <laughs> and so I felt really bad because <laughs> I completely blew it. I didn't listen to what, you know, this kind of inward calling. So they, uh, it's always good when your neighbor is a, actually a tree guy and literally the guy, his guys that work for him heard the tree fall over. They brought out their chainsaws and within 10 minutes that tree was completely uh, off my whole lot. It was just amazing. It's always good to have a lumberjack that's your neighbor. Okay. And, and so I went to Cameron and said, Cameron, dad, dad, dad is so sorry. I, I can't. And so I got out. I walked washed his car, but it had some scratches in it. I was, because I'm cheap, I didn't want to have to pay for it. And so I'm buffing out the, with the rubbing compound. He says, Dad, don't worry about it. I said, Cameron, I feel so bad. He says, don't worry about it. He says, Dad, it's a Subaru. It adds character. That's what he said. <laughs> so Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28, he says, you know what? We know that all things work together for the good for those who love God who is called according to his purposes. And you know what's very powerful when you get to all these, these great pieces of scripture is once again, and, and I, I really love the power that we find about this idea that all things can work to the good. So let me just close with this last little thought today. And, um, and I, 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 I am really... Um, I, I'm just, you know, somewhat torn this morning um, because I got this text from my wife. And so um, last Sunday, um, you might have heard that there was a, a motorcycle accident um, up on 466. It was actually Sunday morning. My friend Gary Search and his wife were actually going that way near Rolling Acres Road. They saw the big wreck there in the road. So my wife actually is a teacher at the Village Charter School. And so um, someone that she, her friend at charter school, knew the family. This young kid was in this accident. His name was Caleb. And so um, he was driving to the intersection on a motorcycle and um, had this head-on collision and it was not good. So they didn't have a family. So um, they asked, they, because Donna's friend had a connection, they said, would, would, your, would, your, would your husband come and pray for him? So Don and I went to the hospital, I think it was um, Monday, and um, I met his father, his name was Cal, never met him before in my life, and um, I, I just tried to love him. Let me tell you, those calls, 
He's on life support. Some of the most difficult, challenging moments of my ministry. Okay? I mean, it's like, you know, you scratch your head and say, what do you say? And so um, I, I said, at the end of our little talk, I was only like five minutes. I said, Cal, listen, I'm just here for you. Here's my card. We're here to love you. Our church is here to love you. I know that you don't really don't have a church, but you know, we're here to love you any way that we can. And um, I prayed for him. I said, can I pray for you? So we, we prayed for Caleb and I prayed for his family and we prayed for strength and we prayed for God's will. And um, so I got this text from Donna um, it was the day before yesterday. So this is this is the update on Caleb. Uh, this is today is day five. This is actually now it's day seven. Since the accident, Caleb continues to be a non-responsive based on the many tests. His brain injury is so extensive it is expected that he will not recover to a quality of life that is meaningful. We have been given a, a difficult decision. And based on what we know about our son and what he wanted for his life, we have made the choice to remove the life support and we have also made the decision to move, to move forward with the organ donation. This is a process to match and arrange so it will be another day or so. We feel the love and energy from everyone and we are thankful and for continued support and prayers of our family. So, I mean, what do you do with that? And some of you want me thinking, maybe I'm stretching on this, but you know, once again, I, I, I continue to go back to Romans 8.28, and Romans 8.28 says, you know, once again, what's it say? We know that all things can work together in the good for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. I mean, obviously this is a tragic, tragic thing for Cable. He's only 20. It's just so sad. Once again, the Lord never promises we aren't gonna go through suffering. But he did say that victory ends at the, there is victory at the end. So I started thinking about, you know what, here's this kid and they decided they're gonna donate his organs and so guess what? If there's anything out of, come out of positive out of this whole horrific thing for this family, is that they know that Caleb, his life and his legacy because he's gonna give his organs to help other people that they're gonna have life. And to me that's good. Yes, it's tragic, it's a horrible thing, but something very good for another person can come out of his kindness and giving of his self to other human beings. Wow. So these last two, what's very interesting when you get to Romans 8, there's actually seven different questions that Paul talks about. And so here are the two, he says, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? What a great question. And the answer is nobody can be against us. Now listen, they were lined up to actually crucify Paul. I mean, the Roman Empire is against him, the Jewish people are against him. I mean, who can, but Paul says, he makes this bold statement. I mean, if, you know, if God is for me, I mean, who can really be against me? And then he goes on, and once again, here's our last little memory verse for Romans. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. Classic line. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. And what's very interesting, the word nothing there, is that it literally means, in the Greek, it comes from two different words. One word is hyper, and the second word is Nike, and Nike means victory. In other words, what Paul is saying is that 
through our love for Jesus Christ, and it's not gonna come through the law, it's not gonna come through the 613 laws, but the ultimate victory comes through belief, and you can have righteousness through Jesus Christ. You can have the sweeping victory, because nothing is gonna stand against that. So Jesus Christ has come not to condemn us, to love us, to save us, to rescue us. Even amidst the suffering of life, there is victory in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.